Miles Doliak is on the show today. He's got a new film out playing in about 10 cities in the theaters nationwide. I forget what those cities are, but New York, L.A., I think New Orleans, a couple other cities. But what I really want to point out is the fact that we recorded this a day before it dropped. It, uh, it, it started showing up on uh, streaming platforms, VOD and theaters on October 15th. We recorded it on October 14th. Uh, we were supposed to get it out before it dropped, but unfortunately there was a bit of a scheduling conflict that happened. So it's out now. I just want to emphasize it's out now on all VOD platforms and in a few theaters. So be sure to check your local listings in movie theaters. And the reason why I'm emphasizing on theaters, because, well, just listen to the first 15 minutes of the show. Miles and me really have a good talk about the theater going experience. So like I said on a previous episode, when you are ready to go back to see a movie in the movie theater, do it. And I highly recommend supporting an indie horror film like Demigod, his new film, by seeing it in the theater. Anyway, here's a nice talk with Miles. Welcome to the basement, everybody. Miles Doliak, welcome to Tyler Geis's basement. Hi, Tyler. Good to be here. I'm I'm really happy you're here. Uh, thanks again for coming back. I know we had a scheduling mix up, but uh, so I got a screener of your new film, Demigod. It is it is very very interesting. I loved it, and um, very phenomenal visuals, which I want to touch on a little later. But um, I just real quick before we kind of move forward with the show just to tease it a little bit what's uh what's the elevator pitch on this movie <laughs> so demigod is the story of robin a woman who travels with her husband leo to her birthplace in germany's black forest upon the death of her estranged german grandfather carl who has left her all of his worldly possessions and when the couple arrives in the black forest uh, Robin learns very quickly that her inheritance is a great deal more terrifying than she bargained for, and things uh, spiral downhill very quickly thereafter. All right, <laughs> um, so don't nobody uh, hit stop on this episode. It's a it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty interesting little horror film. The prologue, the the first five minutes, it was like what the fuck i mean you can swear on this show by the way oh good <laughs> okay that's good to know <laughs> that's uh, good. those are my favorite kinds of shows yeah yeah no like, holes barred yeah i mean you know this show's kind of um it you know i kind of got to you know, obviously like you know guide the show a little bit but it's not too button up we kind of just hang out and talk movies sometimes and i'm not doing interviews so you know since i got a filmmaker on here filmmaker to filmmaker here i kind of always like hearing you know how you got your start, like, or not even just like how you got your start, like almost how you got like the film bug, like what, what made you want to pick up a camera or start writing screenplays or even acting or just, just how, how did it start for you? That's easy. It was 1981 Hardy street cinema in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, uh, sitting in a theater seat as a six or so year old kid watching Raiders of the Lost Ark and talk about the first five minutes of that film. I mean, when I saw Harrison Ford turn around into that beautiful shaft of sunlight and, and 
I mean, that the world just exploded for me. I mean, for me, I was, I was like, man, this is, this is what I want to do. This is who I want to be. And it really played out. <laughs> my, my story hues pretty closely uh, to exactly that moment because ultimately I, um, I've been an actor, I've been a director and I've been a historian. Um, and I have traveled to the ancient world and I have walked on the stones and held the artifacts and, and all that um, fascinating stuff. So, I mean, I, th I think so much of the trajectory of my life is my aspiration to be Indiana Jones, um, both the actor and the archeologist. <laughs> you were very detailed there with the movie theater. Uh, I, I feel like a lot of people have those standout movie theaters that we kind of remember and whatnot. Mine was, one was like the Greenfield Gardens. And I'm from the Northeast, uh, yeah. in Greenfield, Massachusetts, which is a theater that's like still open. And I don't even, they're, they're a very lowbrow theater. I'm like, thank God they survived the pandemic. But um, do you, do you kind of still flock back to the theaters? I know people are kind of, you know, touch and go with it these days, but do you, do you just think the cinematic experience tops everything? I, you know, I was just talking about this in one of my classes. Um, yesterday we watched uh, a, a brilliant Ozu film called Tokyo Story in my yeah. film theory class. And um, after that film was over, if you know the film, you know, it's the ending is a gut punch. It is I mean, yeah. the last, the last half really. Um, so when the film was over, there was this just communal pall, this, this quietude that filled the room. And there were, I mean, must've been 30, 45 seconds before people moved in their chairs or, or started to get up. Um, and that's, that's part of the communal experience. That's a result of the communal experience and everybody sort of taking this thing on, having this thing wash over you, participating in this dialogue with the filmmaker, uh, you know, together collectively and everybody kind of looking at their neighbor and how are they responding and how am I feeling and how, how should I be responding and wh what is this, what is this doing to me? How is it affecting me, in me emotionally? So I, I truly believe um, that watching movies should be a communal experience. I, com I completely understand why that has not been possible uh, during the pandemic. And, and I'm, you know, of course, I'm huge advocate of, of being, being safe and being conscientious and getting vaxxed and, and doing all the things that we need to do to protect ourselves during the pandemic. But, you know, once, once Lindsay and I, my wife were vaccinated and our local film, our, our local movie theaters did reopen um, with of course, safety protocols in place. We, we began to go back to the theater and, you know, we haven't, <laughs> I probably haven't been in a movie theater that we maybe we've seen eight to 10 movies since the pandemic, something like that. Maybe, maybe, maybe 12. Um, I've never been in a theater that's more than about 30% full. And most of the time, you know, we went Sunday night after the saints game to our, one of our local indie theaters, the broad and saw uh, Tatane, the, you know, the Palm d'Or winner. Yeah. Um, and it was, Lindsay and I and two other people in a house that probably seats 50 or 60. Hmm. Um, 
So, and you know, even the big event stuff that we've gone to see suicide squad and, and stuff like that, it's just, uh, you know, maybe, maybe there are 30 people in the theater. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I truly hope that that movie theaters come back strong and we'll get this pandemic behind us. Um, because I think that that's the way movies are meant to be seen. It's a, there's this ritualism about it, right? There's this, once again, this communal quality about it, you know, it's, um, that's how, that's how the movies were born. That's, that's how they became one of our most important cultural mediums. Um, and I sure hope we continue to watch them that way. <laughs> Mike drop. <laughs> right. No, that, that's, that's such a, that, that was a cool, that was a cool little tangent you went on there. That was oh, awesome. <laughs> I, no, I love to go it on tangents. No, cause I cool like, and uncool for me. No, I, I trust me. I love it on this show. Um, <laughs> cause like, that was the thing for me. It was my wife and my father-in-law, we all got vaccinated and it was like, let's, let's do it. Let's go to the movie. And I think it was a quiet place too. It was the first one back. And I think as we record this right now, I'm like on the fence. Do I like Halloween kills comes out tomorrow? Yeah. Yeah. Do I go? I want to see that on the big screen, but like it's on Peacock. I just get, but I'm just like, no, even if I do both, I have to see that thing in the theaters. Uh, and it, just to kind of wrap up this little segment here, like I just heard this on a podcast recently. Someone said, you know, like, yeah, you can sit and you can binge a TV show all you want. You can live it out and love it. And it's a great thing, but there's something about, just always going back to the theater. Like I have, I will go to a theater to see those special screenings of movies that I've seen 50 times. I don't care. There's just something about when the lights go down that just feeling it's just, it's my church. You know, yeah. I don't, I totally get, I totally get you. I mean, I, you know, um, saw no time to die this last weekend. In the movie oh, I gotta do that. Uh, yeah. Uh, can't imagine watching that at home for the first time surprisingly yeah. emotionally resonant by the way i encourage you to see it in the theater if you can it's certainly if you have any inclination of being a bond fan oh yeah certainly a daniel craig bond fan but um you're right it's like church it's not the same i mean you can have the biggest screen on the planet you know at your house and the surround sound and all the thing but it's just not the same if you're sitting there with your wife and your dogs as it is watching it with a group of people mm. who many of whom you don't know at all who are there to experience this magic moment, this thing. You're right. It's exactly like church. So, um, but it's tough. I mean, I think it's just a really tough time for the movie theater business as we prepare. We're having two screening events this weekend in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, near where we shot Demigod and then in New Orleans, um, where I live, um, I don't know if they'll be well attended or not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it's, you know, it's hard to say, and I can't blame people if they're, if they're still not comfortable. Um, but at the same time as somebody who like you has spent his entire life in some of the greatest moments of my life in movie theaters. Um, it's, it's tough to see what, what the movie theater business looks like right now. I, I say this a lot on the show. I, I, <laughs> I made a, I'm rehashing out the past, but I just, it's such a great moment in my life. When I made my first film, uh, we pretty much sold out a local theater, like an 800 seat theater in my hometown. Wow. And great. yeah, we, it was just all grassroots marketing, just a little couple thousand dollar feature film. 
that looks like a $2,000 feature film. And um, I just remember like when, when I got my turn, when my movie was up on the screen and, you know, the lights go down and like, yeah, it was a comedy. People are laughing, but then just that feeling of, I got him to laugh. All right. I got him. And then like when it's quiet, that, that feeling of the audience isn't saying anything and they're listening to the screen and what the actors are saying, it's just a, this great feeling as a filmmaker. So, you know, obviously your film is going to be streaming and whatnot. And, you know, I know we're sitting here talking about the theaters, but like, you know, if anybody in New Orleans or Mississippi is listening, they should, uh, you know, go to your, go to your screen, please. Or it's, LA or, or Seattle or yeah, yeah. Or wherever, wherever the hell it's screaming. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, in, it's like 10 cities, right? So, I mean, if uh, check your local listing, um, it, if, if you're in a major metropolis, it's possible that the movie might be there. All right. All right. Definitely. I will, uh, I will, I will keep tabs on my own, even though I've already seen it on my laptop. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so just to kind of jump ahead here, uh, like as a filmmaker, like who, you just mentioned Ozu, but like what, what, what filmmakers do you kind of flock to or you keep revisiting and whatnot, or just what kind of films you always go back to? Um, so I, I, in terms of my cinematic journey, my love for movies, um, my immersion in the world of cinema, it, it's hard to get around how important Steven Spielberg has been for me. Um, I mentioned Raiders. Jaws is another of my absolute favorite films mm-hmm. um the omaha beach sequence in saving private ryan i think mm-hmm. is one of the most harrowing things ever committed to cinema i mean and i mean we you know with with him we could just go on and on and on in, in terms of my my sort of aesthetic um i i love the aesthetic the visual aesthetic of michael mann um i'm gonna touch on him in a minute yeah um yeah. I, and in fact one of the films that i revisited while prepping demigod was the keep you just answered my question <laughs> which <laughs> which I, I think michael mann has disowned at this point but because the studio yeah. made him cut it up and all this stuff but i mean like most michael mann films the visual aesthetic is absolutely dynamite mm. you know the framing and the colors and the lighting design it's it's just absolutely arresting when he made um, collateral um with tom cruise and jamie fox it, that was like one of the first big things on a red i, I i'm not sure yeah. but like that because his argument was he's like movies that take place at night don't look like night i want something to look like night and like, yeah. i go back and i watch that movie and i'm like yeah that looks like nighttime that looks yeah. like what it looks like outside in a city at night sorry go i think ahead. it was one of the first that was one of the first you know major studio releases on digital right yeah and and he really embraced the the noise, the digital noise, and you know, um, and he embraced the at what at the time some digital cameras still have this problem the 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 limitations of shooting in low light. And he was like, I don't care if there's noise. I like you say, I, I want it to look like night. Mm. I want it to feel gritty and dirty, and you know. Um, so, I, from a style perspective, I've always loved his stuff. I mean. Um, you know, heat is incredible to look at. And um, the framing is just, you know, I, I, I love the, I love his, his dueling steady cam stuff, mm-hmm. you know, just, so just in terms of style and visual aesthetic, um, he's a filmmaker that oftentimes looms really large for me. Um, 
in terms of story and 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 character i mean i'm a big character guy um you know some people say that characters in my movies talk too much and reveal too much of their inner lives but i you know i just that's I want to plumb the depths of their psyches. I want to, you know, turn these people inside out and find out who they really are. And so I, I think about um, a director like Richard Linklater. I love the Before trilogy. I think it's one of the just absolutely magisterial, gorgeous, beautiful. Um, yeah. In terms, in terms of the exploration of a of a human romantic relationship over time. I mean, so, I think he so, had a he had a joke about sorry he, go ahead. he he had a joke about that in some interview he's like that is the lowest grossing movie trilogy franchise of all time but I love it <laughs> <laughs> and oh, it, wow. he's yeah he's 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 definitely one of my heroes that I don't even like think about as my hero because like I when I write sometimes if I'm just writing just dramas and whatnot I, I'm just he's in the back of my head or I'm just like I'm trying to write yeah. dialogue that yeah it seems like it doesn't make sense, but it's like cool. And like, it, it's kind of going somewhere. And I don't know. I just, I've always dug him. Um, I, you know, I mean, how long do you have? Because I could go on and on. I mean, I love Scorsese. Uh, mm. Goodfellas is one of my favorite films. Um, I love the way he uses source music. I can't afford to use source music that way, but by God, if I could, I would. Um, I, um, I love the whole uh, 70s aesthetic um, and 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 yeah. and the, 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 that that period uh both in terms of of course the godfather the you know and, and godfather too but but the sydney lumet stuff dog day afternoon is so incredible such a rich character study brilliantly written and acted there's no it's so great it doesn't need score there's no score yeah in it. There's 70s no score New in York that movie. films. There's something <laughs> yeah. about 70s New York films and seeing like 42nd Street in that era. <laughs> yeah. Like that, like you, you talk to people from like, you know, guys that are, you know, 30, 40 years older than me that lived in New York their whole life. They're like, that's not New York now. That New yeah. York was in the 70s and 80s, which is kind of a grimy time for the city. But there was just, yeah, I know what you mean. Like that, that, that era of like taxi driver. Yeah. Um, well, and, and for me, the, the, the horror movies of that era, I mean, those, mm. those are the, the types of movies that my movies are trying to aspire to when horror movies were more character driven and the visual aesthetic was more front and center. I mean, we're talking about The Exorcist and The Omen and oh, yes. The Wicker Man and The Sentinel and, and you know, those types of films. Um, it was just, I mean, The Exorcist, I think a lot of people don't recognize this. It takes its time. I yes. mean, there's a whole 15-minute prologue that's in Iraq with Max von Sydow. Yeah. And it's like, if you did that in a horror movie today, people would be like, boring. There's you know? a great documentary. <laughs> I'm probably going to plug this multiple times in the coming weeks. And I even mentioned it in a previous episode. I don't know if you're aware of Shudder the the horror yeah, I'm, stream I'm yeah aware of its existence yeah um there's a documentary on there called leap of faith the making of the exorcist and it is a two hour it is yeah it's about a two-hour film and all it is is william freakin in a chair talking to a camera there's b-roll of behind the scenes but it's just freaking and this this stuff he drops the knowledge he drops on you is some of the most amazing filmmaking shit ever <laughs> like, yeah he talks about one of the things that sticks out, and again, I've mentioned this before, I got to stop doing this, but the amount of ascension that is in that film, there's people going upstairs because ascension, yeah. you know, referring to going to heaven and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. There's just so many like 
metaphorical the imagery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's just so much. There's so much going on in there, and it's a drama about a mother and daughter too. Before yeah. you know, before well, shit gets off the goes well, off the rails. Well, mother and daughter, and then the priest, you know, Father Karras and his mother. Yeah, right, yeah. Such a he's huge a, role in his arc. He's right? having a crisis of faith for the yeah. whole movie. It's a character drama with with these you know, supernatural elements. And, yeah. and that's what I admire about those films is they were not afraid to take their time. Maybe this is why I love Tokyo story, right? The Ozu. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, here he's, he's, he's not afraid to take his time. Mm. And, 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 but you have to go with, you have to go with it. And I think that, you know, and one of the things, some of my students, of course, you know, 50, 20 minutes in they're bored as hell. I, I think that, one of the great tragedies is our loss, our collective loss of attention span. Um, I agree. I mean, it, you know, you can't long, you can't have a long movie now that's not a tentpole Hollywood special effects extravaganza. Really, I mean, it's just really hard to pull off. And I, I just, I don't know if The Exorcist, if the same movie came out tomorrow. Not only I, I, I think would it not be well received by audiences, I don't think critics would like. It. I think critics would find a way to disparage it, and yeah. that's troubling. No, there's a there's a lot of films from '70s and early '80s. I feel no, I, I get you're speaking my language. I don't really need to elaborate. That. <laughs> um, so let's let's just jump in now that I kind of I, I know what's in your bag, like what you probably brought to the table with making this film. Uh, let's just let's just talk about demigod right now um you at the very beginning of the show you mentioned you know you 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 know with comparison to indiana jones and you know being an archaeologist i feel like just with kind of the subject material this film you did you do any research but i mean i'm sure you did like just with kind of the the backdrop and everything like i don't know what research went into this. so some of the some of the german celtic certainly roman um religious and cult elements were, were sort of already in my bag as uh, a result of my PhD in ancient yeah. history. Um, I've long been fascinated with vegetation, nature deities, um, like Carnunos, like Dionysus. Um, and the, the mythos of the Black Forest in particular is rife uh, with dramatic possibility. Um, so I... The thing about vegetation deities, right, is that they are the guardians of the natural realm and human beings, of course, must muster it uh, for their very survival. They have to figure out how to make things grow and they have to be able to to um, kill and eat or command and and utilize the beasts of the field and all this kinds of kind of thing. And then but the natural world can strike back via earthquake or or storm or or famine or whatever it might be um and so there's this there's this very tenuous symbiotic relationship and of course human beings are always you know in some way accidentally or on purpose fucking up the natural world Mm -hmm. um and and then how do these deities respond to that and you know what 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 to what lengths do they go to try to um course correct you know and carnunos we took him in a bit more of a sinister direction we sort of, Carnunus has ties to the Germanic hunt god Herne and the Roman underworld god Dispater. Um, there's some syncretistic elements in those three cults. And so we, we sort of pulled on the more, the more sinister uh, 
elements of the of the two deities, Herne and, and Dispater, and, and sort of foisted them onto Cernunnos, who's typically a little bit more benevolent. Certainly on the vegetation deity spectrum, he's quite a bit more benevolent. Um, so I've already read some reviews where like, well, Cernunnos doesn't really run around killing people in the lore. Well, typically no, but so we, we understand this is a liberal interpretation. You have to understand his relationship to these other deities and their cults. And the just notion of ancient secretism, which is, you know, the, the Romans, say, come into a place and they're like, oh, that god, Herne or Cernunos, that's our god, Dispater. They just call him by a different name. You know, mm. so that's just and that's how ancient peoples approached religion and ritual and deity. You know, it's a rose by any other name kind of kind of deal. It's like oh, that's our God. They just call him something different, which of course makes perfect sense since they're speaking a different language. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I thought it was an opportunity to talk about, you know, um, human beings relationship to, to nature in the natural world um, it, it, through the through the the lens of this this nature deity this vegetation deity who is who we call Kernunos and, and who, who has some attributes of Kernunos and some other nature deities as well um but not just that i i mean there's there's a story here about uh daughters under the spell of imposing patriarchs um and generational trauma and um the, you know the sort of mothers and daughters and the, even the witches, we sort of drew on the mother maiden crone mythology uh, or idea as we, as we designed the three of them. And so, yeah, I mean, to make a long story short, anytime I can um, plumb the depths of the, you know, the ancients and ancient lore and religion and ritual, I, I take the opportunity to do so. It's just, it's just still such a rich, rich landscape. Well, that, that's the first thing I could tell when I watched it. I was like, whoever made this definitely did their research and didn't yeah. just want to, you know, have creature in the woods or evil yeah. witches running around. Like, I mean, hey, those movies are fine, too. But like, yeah. I, like I could just tell from like the information you were providing through the, the characters with their dialogue, um, especially your character, may I add. The, the second he pops up on screen, I'm like, I don't really trust this guy. I, I don't know. <laughs> and then I did the connection. I was like, oh, it's the uh, acting and directing. So just touch on that. Like, what's it like to jump back and forth between in front and behind the camera? Challenging. But when you are able to surround yourself with the team of folks that I have um, and I trust them to keep me honest and I trust them to tell me if they think I'm going in the wrong direction. Um, I, you know, I, I, this is six features now that I've both acted in and directed and it really requires, you know, talk about leap of faith. Um, it, you have to be willing to give up a little bit of control. You have to be willing to be collaborative. You have to be willing to take somebody else's opinion at times um, as gospel, or, or at least to internalize it and wrestle with it and say, oh, that, that, you know, they're standing at the monitor, I'm in front of the camera, you know, they're saying we need to do it again, or we don't have it, and I don't have time to run and watch playback, and so, you know, Lindsay Ann Williams and Wesley O'Mary have been 
um, sort of my right hands on the last several films. And Lindsay, of course, is also my partner in life in, in addition to the creative realm. Um, and James Boolean was who's been a producer on the last two. And um, they are, they're all integral. Matt Paul, our first AD on the last two, um, always, always has eyes on what's going on and is there to make observations. And, and then this first time working with Nate Tate as my DP, and it was a real treat. I mean, we spent a lot of time in the run-up to this film talking about the visual aesthetic, talking about the framing, talking about the lighting, talking about the color, talking about the mood that we wanted to convey. Um, so it felt like when we got on set, Nate knew exactly what I wanted. And, you know, it, it wasn't, we were sort of in each other's heads and we didn't need to have a lot of conversation on set because we had plotted it all out. And this, this film was more plotted out despite the fact that obviously on every film, especially an indie film, you encounter obstacles during production that you have to adjust and overcome. But um, it felt like we were more prepared going into this one than we had ever been and more committed to a specific visual aesthetic. And that included the you know, using anamorphic widescreen and using uh, vintage lenses and to get, you know, the, the certain kind of flair that we wanted. Um, so I, I felt like by the time I got on set with this one, I really was able to, as an actor to just play because we knew what we wanted to do. Interesting. That's a, no, it, from, from watching it, I felt the confidence from you, the director, it, it definitely, I don't know. It felt like a very uh, intellectual horror film. I, I guess I could say, I don't know if that's the right way of putting it, but I yeah. felt like you were pulling from, you know, story wise and performance wise. And um, I, I want to touch on the visuals, but it just felt very sophisticated. And I, I really kind of go, I, I usually, sometimes I go for schlock. I, but yeah. like, <laughs> everybody does. Sure. Yeah. But like every now and then a good scary movie that just, you know, like, kind of takes itself seriously really hits the spot and i think you did a great job with that and but i just want to you were touching on the visuals a little bit i just want to pick pick some of my just favorite shots in the film um first of all i want to talk about the creature effects okay. before we're going to visuals just talk to me about the creature effects and how i don't know the behind the scenes of putting that thing together that was so intimidating <laughs> yeah so um we knew um we had to keep it simple. We didn't have the budget to do anything other, um, but we wanted, so that, so that started, I think with, we knew we had to cast an actor with an imposing physicality whose very presence could be intimidating. And, and we found that in Chima Chekwa. Um, we knew we wouldn't be able to do sort of a full body prosthetic makeup um, so we had to sell a lot of it with costume and little details, the fingernails, um, you know, the, the eyes, the, the red eyes, which, you know, it's, uh, some, some people, have loved, yeah. some people have loved them. And some people have said, why does an ancient deity have these glowing red eyes? But so, but, you know, our philosophy was a, the deity evolves each time he's born. He has new talents and new strengths based on, you know, how the world is evolving. Um, and two, uh, the red glowing eyes looked really cool when you shoot them with a, a 
vintage anamorphic lens because you get this yeah. you get this flare all the way across the cool, screen yeah. which is like and look don't don't make no mistake every filmmaker sometimes makes a choice like that like this looks fucking fantastic we have to do it um and you know everything else be damned um and we we weren't exactly saying that but but um so we uh, and then julie tosh was really responsible for the facial prosthetic our production designer um and then our our makeup department head ashley treadaway putting the finishing touches on it and, and Lindsay, who was a, our costume designer giving him that wonderful leather cuirass and and then of course his his various weaponry um and then you know we we sort of jaws like tried to keep him in the shadows for the first half of the film before we really revealed him um and then when we did um we wanted to make the reveal glorious and that was the the shot of at sunset where he comes over the ridge when he's chasing leo Yes, that was one of my favorite shots in the entire movie. It was just beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we there was like a 15 minute window we had to get that shot where the sun yeah. was in the right spot. Um so and then of course what we what we didn't have in in terms of budget um and prosthesis, we wanted to make up with the just the characters brutality and physicality. Um, and I feel like we we were able to accomplish that. Um, I mean, some of the some of this this character these this character's kills I I just think come off really well. It's really dynamic, um, and I, you always you always feel this sense of that you know he might throw his broadsword or you know grab you and rip your throat out or you know whatever in you know in an instant like that he just ha has this 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 power and this strength and this speed um so like we had the we had the one shot that we speed ramped um during uh, right before one of the kills of one of our uh characters um so we had to, there are a lot of little tricks you know at play um that we're trying to make up for the fact that we have no money um but necessity is the mother of invention, you know, they say, and speaking of Jaws, you know, the shark POV, and they, that was a thing because the shark never worked. And can you imagine the film without it? It's far more terrifying than seeing the shark. So uh, <laughs> we sort of took, we sort of took that mentality uh, of, we know what our limitations are. We know what we have at our disposal and we are going to embrace our strengths and and try to minimize the uh, those those limitations or make those limitations as invisible as possible. And of course, we had a great team of folks committed to doing that. Definitely. Uh, let's talk. Uh, I noticed you use a, at least it seemed like it. You used a lot of Steadicam. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned obviously with Michael Mann, you know his his uh, usage of Steadicam as well. Just I don't know. Just talk about. Your love for I, I mean, it. I love it. I love Steadicam. I love, I love that Steadicam float. I love how there's a, there's a rhythm to it. It, it's like music. Um, it immerses you in the world of the characters while at the same time giving you just this slight sense of being discombobulated because it, the, the image is always floating just a little mm. bit. Um, um, 
And I thought it was just absolutely perfect for this setting where our characters are sort of at the mercy of the forces of nature mm -hmm. uh, and in a, in a strange land um, and surrounded by these priestesses of Kernunos and their god and their henchmen. And it's all sort of swirling around tornadic like, you know, and um, a lot of circular imagery. And so we're, 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 um, we're sort of doing a lot of stuff like that in Steadicam where we're surrounding the characters the way they're being surrounded by the forest. Um, you see that, especially in that bit with, um, um, well, first when, when Robin and um, Leo enter the cabin, that's a big one. Um, yeah. Um, and a lot of Steadicam work in the in the scene where the um, where our captives are in that circular. Yeah, I was gonna area. say when they're out in the you forest know? and they're right. stuck to the right. trees. I was just like, "Whoa, we've been going here for a few minutes, no cuts." Like, I mean, yeah. I live for that stuff as long as it's like motivated, and I can tell by what you're saying. Yeah, the whole witch. I mean, the the you know the opening shot of the film is a pretty long Steadicam shot, and then yes. the the wit the walk up the witch when the witches are walking up to the shrine there where everyone is chained. You know, I think that one goes on for minute, minute 40 or something like that. It's a pretty mm -hmm. lengthy steady cam shot. Um, so, I, you know, that's I wanted to do uh, some of that, some of those unbroken um, shots when I could um, do once again, just in the in the to capture the sense of the natural realm and the movements of nature and the and the cyclical nature of the thing, you know, um, and, and sort of as much as possible putting our audience in the in in the place of our protagonists and 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 allowing our audience to feel to some degree or another a little discombobulated as as observers and prey uh, in this this place in the in the black forest so um, but you know, I, there are a lot of, a lot of reasons I could justify use of Steadicam, you know, I mean, it's like, um, for one thing, it's just, um, if you have a good Steadicam operator, just, it, you can, you, you save so much time. And we was just, I mean, part of the reason, you know, not only because of the aesthetic of Steadicam, but that, that scene in the circle, like, like that's like a 15 page bit. I mean, it, it goes on for a while. Right. Mm. And, um, you know, if we, if we tried to put the camera on sticks and get coverage of everything, I mean, we, we would have been there three days and we had half a day. Um, but we had an amazing steady cam op in, in Jordan Marable, um, who was just, and, and what we would do for a lot of those sequences is we would just have him shoot, just shoot the whole sequence and we do it, you know, four or five, six times. And he'd get something a little different each time. Um, and then you get in the editing room and then you have these, these beautiful flowing edits yeah. and, you know, you're not worried about the 180 line because the camera's moving across it and all this, all this kind of stuff. And it's just, um, man, on an indie budget, you can't always afford steady cam, but, uh, just like you can't always afford two cameras, but somehow we got both those things on this one and, and, uh, it's, yes, you're spoiled. I don't know, you know, how do I go back? I don't know. Um, not my first time using Steadicam, but um, every time I'm able to use Steadicam, I'm reminded about what a fantastic tool it is for filmmaking. It really is. Uh, I want to touch on you, just your cast, okay. real quick. I know you got uh, Jeremy London to come out for 
um, little bit part there. But uh, just talk to me about him because he's he's kind of a he's quite the standout name. Yeah, me. so Jeremy's become a friend. Uh, we had Jeremy not only in this movie but in our last movie, The Dinner Party, where he yes. played a really really streaming on Tubi role. right now. Yeah, yeah, streaming on Tubi, and and we love Tubi. Tubi takes good care of independent filmmakers, so watch do, it there. Yeah. Um, and uh, so when we started writing this, I wanted to give Jeremy a little more to do in this, and um, uh, he. He jokes that he had to move to Mississippi to get a role where he actually spoke German. So uh, <laughs> this was his for very first time doing that, speaking German in a movie. Uh, but he did a fantastic job. And we, we had fantastic dialect coaches and Oliver Hoffer and then Elena Sanchez, who is, who is half German and fluent in German, um, was there helping sort of guide us playing double duty. She was Latara on, um, and then also um, wanted to be on set um, making sure we were on point with our German. So that was a real um, stroke of fortune that we had. So Jeremy um, uh, and I just, you know, we met, um, I don't know, three or four years ago now through a series of fortuitous circumstances and, and just really hit it off kind of kindred spirits. And, and um, you know, I, he's one of those guys that I, I I'm going to put him in every movie if he's, if he's available and you know i've already written an, a new script with uh, a leading role for him um because he's like but next time miles i want a leading role so so uh so i wrote him one so we'll hopefully we'll we'll get that one done next year um but he's he's a lot of fun and of course you know he's got you as you might imagine ample stories i bet yeah. um for you know kevin smith stories and all right yeah. yeah right um, and so if you just want to, you know, sit around and bullshit and talk Hollywood and, and, you know, the nineties, uh, scene, um, uh, he's got some tall tales, um, and, <laughs> and he makes great pepper jelly. I don't know if you know that, but he's got this, he's in the course of the pandemic, he's become quite an, an a, a avid gardener, um, pepper jelly. peppers. He makes pepper jelly. L I'm going to make London's, note of that and see if I can get him on the show or something. <laughs> London's most wanted pepper jelly. Look it up. Okay. I mean, the way to his heart is through the pepper jelly. I'm telling you. And, and I, and I look, I'm, I'm a, I'm a bit of a pepper jelly aficionado and okay. his pepper jelly is quite good. There's a sweet version and a spicy version. I prefer the spicy, but, um, no L London's most wanted. I believe it's, I believe he's got a website. London's most wanted pepper. <laughs> Or some pepper jelly, this. he'll come on your show. I guarantee you. Okay, good stuff. I'll, it's good stuff. I'll, I'll look into that. Uh, <laughs> oh my god, that's awesome. Um, so just to kind of wrap things up here, just if there's any kind of final besides go watch it, but like any kind of final statements you want to say about about. I mean, film. I also want to shout out Rachel Nichols. Who oh took yeah, a yeah, chance. Yeah, yeah who took the rest a chance cast on our film. Me. Yeah. Um, she, this was her first film uh, after the pandemic broke out and she was willing to take her chance, take a chance on a relatively small independent project like ours. And I'm so gratified. I've been a fan of Rachel's for many years. Um, and I knew on the first we hopped on a Zoom call after we made the offer to her. And, you know, I knew after 10 minutes that Rachel and I were going to work famously together. And um, it was just a real mutual admiration society. And she has this incredible ability to play both vulnerable and strong almost simultaneously. It's where, she, you know, you, there's this very 
together steady facade but underneath you see the soft underbelly and you see the you see the fear you see the anxiety sort of percolating up in her eyes and in her face and it um I just knew she was going to be great in this and in fact she was and and Rachel has been so wonderful in supporting our film I bet she's done 20, 25 uh, Zoom interviews, podcasts, magazine interviews for this show. I mean, she doesn't act like a, you know, A-list star at all, despite the fact that she hangs around like 500 on the IMDb star meter. Um, that's what they always say, right? If you can get somebody that's in the top 1,000 on the IMDb star meter, you, you've really accomplished something. And yeah. um but Rachel's that she was just a team player and she came out and she, she gave it her all. And, um, and, you know, we continue to, to chat, um, you know, if not a daily basis on a weekly basis. And, you know, I gave her a lot of hell about the saints kicking the Patriots ass uh, earlier in the NFL Wait, season. Where's she from? Yeah, she's, well, she's originally from Maine. All right, I'm from Massachusetts. She, so yeah. if you want to give me hell too, then. <laughs> <laughs> so she's but she's a she's a big patriots fan yeah me and too man <laughs> so um well i mean you know the i mean the saints aren't looking like world beaters but they did in the in that game and in the green bay game so they're I looking we'll better see. than a lot of people thought they would be yeah I, yeah season. there's a lot of a lot of season to go and i i think that um i actually think that Jameis and sean are finding their way i mean i, yeah. I after last sunday's game i feel like okay we maybe maybe we're on onto something I also think, by the way, that Matt Jones is going to be special. I think, in, yeah, like I really think he's going to, yeah. you know, in that and we're talking sports here, but whatever. But, we're wrapping up the show anyway. Yeah. But like that, that Bucks Patriots game, like when they let Mac yeah. Jones actually play, and I was like, yep. oh my god, he might beat Brady in the house that Tom built. Yep. So, but nah, then they didn't go for it on fourth down. Anyway, uh, so uh, demigod where as we record this it drops tomorrow right yes so, so it drops tomorrow on uh, october 15th and it's it's you know like i said it's in about 10 cities theatrically los angeles seattle cleveland boston dallas um detroit um new orleans uh, a couple of cities in mississippi near where it was shot hattiesburg and the iberville mississippi so if you're in one of those cities i do encourage you if you feel comfortable to go see it at the movie theater. It was, it was shot to be seen that way. And for all the reasons we discussed earlier on in the interview, try to see it in a movie theater if you can. If not, watch it on the biggest screen you can with the best sound you can. This is one of my favorite scores of, of any of my films. Uh, once again, collaborating with the amazing Clifton Hyde, uh, composer, multi-instrumentalist, and you know, all-out genius. Um, who, you know, delivered exactly what I wanted um, in terms of the score of this film, which was sort of like Tangerine Dream meets Jerry Goldsmith's Omen score. Nice. Um, yeah, I see. <laughs> so, I, I definitely, once you said Tangerine Dream, I was like, oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, and I would just say wherever you watch the film, because you can watch it on all of the transactional VOD sites, like iTunes and Google Play and Amazon and all that stuff. Uh, just leave us a short review. If you have anything nice to say about the movie, leave us a short review. It really does help. We don't have the resources to compete with the studios uh, in terms of marketing and, and PR, but so we depend a, a great deal on word of mouth. So leave us a short review on the side of your choice 
or on IMDb and then tell tell one person, hey, I saw this cool indie horror movie last night, uh, Demigod. I watched it on Amazon. Check it out. Um, that would really go a long way. And, and we certainly would appreciate your listeners' support. Definitely, man. Definitely. That is a perfect segue in what I'm about to do. Because uh, I also want people... Well, before that, yes, do that. Do that for Miles. Do that. I, I need to emphasize that because it's a good film. It's a great film. Um, if you can see it in the theaters, and I'll keep my eyes peeled if there's anywhere close to me, and maybe I'll, even though I've already seen it, but you know, <laughs> but um, on your laptop. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's nature of the beast. I get it. We get it. I uh, know. Okay. I know. It's it's the business, but um, I also want people to uh, subscribe, rate, and leave a nice review for this show, Tyler Geist's Basement, as we are you know growing daily with downloads nonstop. I see you all downloading it uh, daily. So don't lie to me, leave a nice review for me. You guys know what to do. Follow me on Instagram. And as for you, miles, thank you for an awesome show. This was awesome. It was great to talk to you. Tyler. Thank you. And by the way, by helping Tyler, you help miles, you help all independent artists who are out there doing really cool stuff, right. Who are, you know, kind of working outside, you know, the big studio system. And, um, it's much, much harder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so Deuce, yes, absolutely. Support my movie. Absolutely support what Tyler's doing. Tyler's supporting my movie. Um, I'm hopefully in some small way helping his his game, gig by being on a show. Um, <laughs> but it just help independent artists when you can. You yeah. Know, whether that's going to see a, you know, a, a musician at a coffee shop or watching Tyler's show and downloading it. Help independent artists when you can. They need all the help they can get. Help all your artist friends, not the uh, <laughs> famous clothing lines don't run by celebrities. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, again, Miles, thank you for a great show. Um, I don't know. That's it. We'll talk to you all next week on The Basement. Take care, everybody.